Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Good morning. Hey, we're spending some time this summer looking through the Psalms, really seeking both peace and comfort as well as wisdom for a lot of the pressures that we face even today. I wanted to thank Justin. Hey, Justin. I want to thank Justin the last couple of weeks for walking us through some psalms. One that offers us peace in the midst of the cultural chaos we might find ourselves in. And then last week, if you missed it, I think this was hugely important. A psalm that was beckoning, beckoning to us from the digital world into a real life relationship with the living God. And I'm so grateful for your teaching the last couple of weeks. Um, something that's been on my mind and my heart a lot that I wanted to, to do today is talk about what we do when it feels like the walls are beginning to close in on us. Do you know what that experience is like? How many of you had a, a season or a moment in, in life where you felt like all the walls were beginning to close in on you and you had nowhere to turn? I, I pictured, remember the Star Wars uh, when they were in the trash compactor and the walls were coming in and he's screaming, C-3PO! I, I just pictured this as I came to the psalm we'll look at today. Maybe in your life there was a moment where you had opportunities in front of you and they all just started disappearing and you're going, I don't know where I'm going to go or what I'm going to do. Maybe you had relationships you felt secure in and then you started to learn that, that they weren't so sound and people began to turn on you. Or maybe it was stuff that people said about you or to you and you felt like everything was coming against you and you just didn't know where to turn. If you've experienced that, I'd bet you you have, and then you would know the anxiety and the pressure and the fear that begins to creep in and threatens to take over in your life. And then probably if you've experienced that, you know just how mixed up you begin to get in your head and how defeating it can feel in your heart and your life in seasons like that. Something I've found that's true in my life is when I'm in moments like that, how I respond, what I do tells me a lot about myself. It, it reveals to me what I really think about who I am and whose I am. And when I respond to these moments, when it feels like everything in life is falling apart around me, I begin to learn some things about how I really view God and my relationship with God. And so as I turned to the Psalms, I found one that I think is perfect for moments like this in our lives. It's in Psalm 4, if you want to grab your Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 4. The fourth Psalm, we'll call it a Psalm for tight spots. A psalm for when you're in a tight spot. And the reason I call it this is because of what David, who's the author of this psalm, says in the very first verse, in the first line of Psalm 4. He says to God as a prayer, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And here's the line, listen to this. You have relieved me in my distress. And this line is huge because when we look at the Hebrew language this was written in, the word distress has a spatial sense to it. It's not just trouble, but it has a spatial sense to it. it it's literally translated narrow or a tight space. And so he says, well, you've relieved me when I was in a narrow or tight space. And the Hebrew word for relieved here literally means to grow wider or grow larger. So when David says, you have relieved me in my distress, in other words, he could just be saying, when I was in a tight spot, you, God, made room for me. 
You see that here in that first line of this psalm? That's why I think this is a perfect psalm for when we feel like the walls are closing in on us. Now, we don't really know what situation David is in in the moment that he wrote this psalm. It's not in the inscription. It's not detailed in the psalm itself. You can go through and probably apply it to a lot of different seasons and situations in his life. But the fact is we don't really know what this moment was in his life. But what we do know from what we'll read is he's in a tight spot. And in this moment... Where he is and what's going in his life is shaking him to some degree. It doesn't really matter, I guess, what is happening in his life. That doesn't really change. All that really matters is he's in a tight spot. And in this moment, God begins to push the walls back so that he wouldn't be destroyed. And so the good thing for us is this kind of puts us in a place where we're not just comparing one for one. Am I in the exact situation that David was in in this moment? But we're just looking and saying, I think we have a psalm here that is for any of us when we find ourselves in a tight spot. When we begin to feel the pressure on all sides and we're feeling hemmed in and don't know where to turn, there's hope for us found in this psalm that God has help and care available to us if we turn to Him. It reminds me very much of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 when he talks about being pressed upon from all sides but not crushed. And he says that he was perplexed about his situations and what's going on. God, what is happening in my life? And yet he's not despairing. And people are persecuting him, but he doesn't feel abandoned by God or or, um, um, left on his own at all. And that he's been struck down by some blows in life, but he knows he's not destroyed. That's the heart of Psalm 4. And it could be this morning that you are in a tight spot. And I wouldn't know the details of that right now, but you may feel this already. And so you're going... God, the idea of God himself is watching and he cares and he's offering help for me and he might give me room to breathe, to see straight, to, to even have a clear line of thought in my mind in this moment. It sounds fantastic to me. And then there are others of you, you may not be in a, a season of, of real trial or trouble right now, but you're smart people and you know it's coming. And not just once for you, but it's going to come often for you. These are the kinds of moments that we have over and over again in our lives. And for you, this is the perfect time to learn how to respond before the trouble hits so that when the trouble comes, you already are prepared to respond in a way that's helpful and that's right. And we have great advice from Tim Keller, and he has a book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, and in it, this incredible advice. He says, once you're in a crisis, it often seems like there's no time to sit down and give substantive study and attention to parts of the Bible. And then he talks just about his own story in life. He says, as a working pastor for nearly four decades, I've often sat beside people who were going through terrible troubles and silently wished that they had taken time to learn more about their faith before, right, before the tidal wave of trouble had engulfed them. That's really good advice. And so this morning, whether you are in a tight spot and you have felt the pressure and anxiety building and mounting in your life, or if you just know it's going to hit you again at some time, it's a great time for us to turn to this and learn how can we respond in these moments in a way that calls for help in the right way that we might receive it. Or in other words, what do we do when we feel like the walls are closing in? How should we respond when we are in a tight spot? And David will teach us by showing us through his example, how he responds in this moment. And where I want to start is just where he starts in the very opening. First thing that we see is when you're in a tight spot, do as David does and turn to God, listen, with confidence. Somebody say with confidence, with confidence. Listen to verse one. 
Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. He's surrounded by so much that is wrong, so he's turning to one who is by nature always right and righteous. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now, it is not unusual at all for people to turn to God in prayer when they're in trouble, right? And you have seen this, maybe this is something that's happened in your life and season or people you know, even people who don't have a relationship with God, people who don't believe in God at all, don't believe in His goodness at all, may turn to God and cry out to Him when they're in trouble. And it, it goes something like, God, if you're out there and if you're real and if you can hear me right now, would you help me? We've all done that in times and seasons. But I want you to notice this isn't David's heart when he prays. He's full of distress, but he's also full of confidence. He's not unsure at all about God and where he stands with God. He's full of distress, but that distress doesn't displace an incredible confidence he has. And what is the confidence he has? He has confidence that God is there, he is real, that he hears David, his eye is on David, and that God will actively respond to David's trouble. He's not crossing his fingers, throwing up a prayer, and just hoping maybe this will work out in some way. And he's not unsure in kind of approaching God as a stranger or a beggar, crawling in, sneaking in, hoping he can get some kind of a blessing from God. But David's pretty bold and gutsy in this prayer. Answer me when I call to you, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Hear my prayer. Meet my need now. Right? He is bold in his expectation that God will hear him, God will respond to him, and that God desires to do so. I think it's a pretty good bet David's made. It's a good bet. Why? Because God has given us prayer for this very purpose. I want you to see this, that God initiated prayer for this very purpose. Think about Genesis 3 in the beginning with the first of humanity. The first moment that they turned their back on God's rule in their life and said, we'll go our own way. What happens is God comes after them, doesn't he? Not to spank them, not to beat them. He comes after them to speak with them. This is what prayer is. Prayer is our communication with God. It's God communicating with humanity. And God comes in Genesis 3 after the fall, after the first pain of sin begins to mark the life of humanity. God comes and He says, Adam, where are you? Where are you? What has happened to you? How has this happened? What's wrong? And then in Genesis 3.15, He gives the grace that is inerrant within Him. He gives the grace that is perfect within Him. And He gives us the first promise of the gospel, the first promise of a Savior. Adam, where are you? What's wrong? What has happened? How did, this, how did this happen? And as the troubles of humanity, the troubles of life are brought to surface, God's answer is, I will send a Savior for you. I will not leave you like this forever. And throughout the pages of the Scripture, this is the pattern of God. He calls to humanity. He calls to His people, inviting us to meet with Him, to speak with Him, that our troubles would be brought to surface with Him, and we would receive His care and His help. Listen to Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. My eyes will be open And my ears are attentive to the prayer offered in this place. You see God watching and listening and waiting and desiring his people to come to him that he might meet their need in in, in the time of, of trouble. 
Here's Jeremiah 33.3. Call to me, God says, and I will answer you. I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Ephesians 6.18, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Philippians 4.6, don't be anxious about anything. He says not just big things. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't let anxiety consume you when it begins to creep in, when you feel the walls closing in. Don't allow yourself to despair. Don't allow yourself to be destroyed. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and by supplication with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Colossians 4, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. This isn't just an occasional thing that we do when we're in trouble, but be committed to talking to God every day, all the time, about all of the things that you're facing in this life. Devote yourself to this, being watchful, being thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 then tells us, don't stop. Just keep praying. Pray all the time. Pray without ceasing. How much should I pray? Well, there's not a quantifiable number. Just be praying is what, is what we're told in, in 1 Thessalonians 5. So prayer, I want you to see this, it's a gift that God gives to his people. It's a gift that he gives us that in whatever we face, on any day that we face it and wherever we face it, that we're invited to know him in the middle of it. It's to welcome us into his heart, into his inner life, which is so full, bubbling over with grace and with goodness and with love, with kindness, kindness which leads to repentance, with generosity. Prayer is there to welcome us into the heart of God and to welcome his blessings into our, our lives. You see this? I do not believe under any, uh, any terms that God would give us prayer, initiate prayer, call us to prayer so frequently throughout the scriptures. It's just a vain and empty religious exercise. It's not there to pass the time. It's not there to prove anything. It is there for us to commune with the living God who loves us and pursues us and desires to meet the needs of our lives. Remember uh, in, in Richard Foster's celebration of discipline, he said, uh, prayer ushers us into perpetual communion with God. It's the central avenue in which he meets with us and he begins to transform uh, our lives. David understood this. David understood this, this prayer thing wasn't simply a religious act that holy people are supposed to do to prove how holy they are, but it is this relationship, this central relationship he has with his God that gave him a, a confidence that he could turn to God at any time, especially times when the walls were closing in, and he would know that God would hear him. And not just, not just hear him, listen, any of you this morning could come to me after the service and begin to unload your problems, all of the suffering, all of the things that you're facing right now, and I can sit with you and I can hear you. I can listen. I can nod my head. I can offer you words of encouragement, and at the end of the day, you may feel heard that I have been a good listener. You may think that, that he was a good listener in this moment, and that's important, but I haven't done really anything to help you. David expects God will not only be a good listener, but that God will push the walls back and make room for him to breathe, that he would not be destroyed, that he might be pressed upon, but he would not be crushed. You have relieved me in my distress. He approaches God, notice the tense of that, as one who has done this in the past. God, you have done this before. I've been in trouble so many times in my life. Sometimes it was my fault and sometimes it was someone else and their, their influence on me or their pressure on me or their sin against me. But there have been times that I have been in a tight corner and God, you have made room for me. Now would you, would you do it again? See that? Spurgeon commented on this. He, he said, 
God who has helped us in six troubles won't leave us in the seventh. God does nothing by halves. He doesn't save by half and he doesn't help by half. He does nothing by halves and he will never cease to help us until we cease to have need. The manna shall fall every morning until we cross the Jordan into the promised land. God wants us to pray prayers that are bold. I believe when we read the scriptures and we see the patterns of prayer throughout the Bible, we find that God wants us to pray prayers that are kind of unashamed and undignified, some that are just kind of audacious at times. And we see this throughout the Bible. People pray bold, crazy prayers that are gutsy and honest and sometimes a little outrageous when they pray. And they don't always have the right idea of it. Their request isn't always right. Their attitude isn't always right. Their perspective is sometimes very far off from God's perspective on a situation. But it seems like the prayers of the Bible have a common understanding that unprayed prayers are always unanswered prayers. Do you get that? And so they might have the wrong idea, the wrong attitude, the wrong request, the wrong perspective. But if they don't go to God with it, they're not inviting him to welcome his blessings into their life. They're not inviting him to begin transforming them in the midst of their situation. They're just saying, I'll be here, you be there, God, and we'll live life apart from one another. So they take these crazy, bold, outrageous prayers to God and invite him to begin to work in the midst of their chaos. Jesus talked about this. Remember when he talked about ask and seek and knock? In Matthew 7, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone to break his teeth on, right? Or if one asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake that will bite him, right? If you then, being evil, being sinful, being less than righteous, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Somebody say, how much more? How much more would your Father in heaven, who is holy in love, who who is an ever-flowing, just river of kindness and generosity and provision and blessing, whose grace never ends, whose love never ends, how much more will your Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? The point is this, my children, I've got four kids, 13 to 3, none of them hesitate to ask me for stuff, right? Why is that? Well, it's because me and their mother, we're the ones who are with them. We're here for them. We love them. We want to provide for them. They know we want to protect them. They know that we want to bless them. They have a deep-seated understanding that they're not providing for themselves in this life as of yet. Sometimes they forget, and I'm very quick to remind them, go get a job, right? See how you do. Go get a job. And then they're reminded really quickly, I'm the one who is here for them. I love them. I love to meet their needs. I want to, sometimes I love to bless the heck out of them if I can find some audacious way to just pull it off, just to, just to knock their socks off and just to show them, hey, I want you to enjoy, enjoy life with me. And Jesus' point is, if I, being evil, being full of sin, being unrighteous, being a struggler, being broken, making mistakes all the time. If I have that desire, that willingness, I know how to to do good and love to bless my children. How much more, how much more does our Father in heaven who is holy and perfect know how to protect us and provide for us and desire to bless us when we ask, right? Keep this in mind. David was king. Why? 
because God desired him to be king. He chose him to be king. Remember the story God uh, sent Samuel, the prophet Samuel, to go to Bethlehem, to David's family, to his father Jesse. Took him to bring him really to David to reveal his plan for David, to show him the truth about himself and the plan that he was laying out for him. He used Samuel to anoint David, to give him a new identity, a new place in his kingdom, uh, a new understanding of how he belonged to God and how he would walk with God. God, through Samuel, gave David blessing, protection, provision, care, knowledge, wisdom, his countenance upon David. And I want you to see your life through this same lens, that God sent his own son, Jesus, to come to reveal his plan to you reveal to you what he is like and what he intends and what he wills and how much he loves you. He sent Jesus to share this message with you and then in Christ to anoint you, to adopt you, to make you his own, to give you a new identity, a new place in his kingdom, a new purpose, a, a way to walk with him in peace and unity and grace all of your days. And in Christ, you are children of the living God. You are brother or sister brother or sister, to King Jesus himself. This is the promise of Scripture, John 1, 12. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Galatians three twenty six. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Do you hear that? You hear that? Someone said this once and it stuck with me. I thought it's beautiful. I want, just if you close your eyes for just a moment, I want you to hear these words wash over you and don't be distracted by any other thing. Church, no one's voice sounds sweeter to God than your voice saying, hello, Father. There is nothing going on in the cosmos that would keep him from directing his full attention to your conversation or your request. That is the promise of God in the scriptures. You can open your eyes. And listen to verse 3. David knows this. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. What made David godly? Was it because he was perfect? No. What made him a man after God's own heart? Was it because he always did the right thing? No. Was it because he had proven himself and he had earned his place as king. No. God sent Samuel to collect David and make him his own, just as Christ was sent to collect us and make us his own. David says, no, the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears. He hears when I call. He has such confidence, bold, unshaken confidence that the righteous good God had his attention on his life and he delights to be with him in all times, maybe especially during tough times. So it would be obvious that it would not be mistaken at all that God is always watching, always caring, and always ready to provide for his children. Now, David is not looking at God as a genie in the bottle, as we often may tend to. David is not presenting this as a, whenever I'm upset, I just kind of summon God and, and tell God, I have some wishes God, you need to fulfill my wishes now in a way that David would put himself above, above God. But instead, what David does here is he turns to God knowing and understanding that whatever he's doing, wherever he's doing it, he's always at all times and all moments, highs and lows in life, living under the gaze of God, and he's seeking to live under the authority of God 
and the care of God, fully depending on the, 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 the grace of God and the power of God, the love of God, to the glory of God. At all moments and all times, and David does this, you see here when the walls are closing in, when he finds himself in a deeply, deeply distressing moment. This is how he turns to God. He, and it reveals something about him. When I respond in these moments of my life, it tells me who, who I really think I am and whose I really think I am. In this moment, the way David responds to God shows you that his identity, who he is, and his security is completely wrapped up in who God is, 100%. Oh, God of my righteousness, God who has set me apart, who hears me when I call, you bring me the gift of perspective. You move the walls back. You give me the gift of peace. You give me the gift of presence, and you bring relief. You bring relief in my distress. So when you, church, are in a tight spot, what should you do? You should turn to God with confidence, not unsure about if He's there, if He's watching, if He cares, and if He can do good. But you go to Him with confidence, knowing that in Christ He loves you dearly. He has pursued you faithfully and relentlessly for your entire life, and He desires to hear your voice calling to Him. And as problems arise, He begins to bring His grace down in your life. Remember how He's cared for you in the past and believe He'll care for you to the end. When we do this, there's something amazing that begins to take place in our life. When we turn to God in the highs and the lows, we depend on Him, something amazing takes place. Listen to this. Dependence on God brings two things, peace, but not only peace. We'll see that in the text. It also brings gladness, and we'll see that in the text. Verse 6, many people are saying, who will show us any good? It's a test. Who will show us anything good? God, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. This begins to show us there are a couple of ways, different ways that people relate to God. One is circumstantial, where I relate to God based on, on how circumstances are. Verse 7 will talk about when grain and new wine abound. Verse 6 says, show me the good, okay? And so when things are good, God must be good. Like he has blessed me, my life is good, God is good all the time. As long as things are good, God is good, right? But when things aren't good, when I don't have, when I am pressed upon, now I'm testing. Who will show me anything good? And we begin to doubt the goodness of God. That's one way that people relate to God and respond to God. But there's a second way that people relate to God, and it's not based upon circumstances. And this is what we see in David, verse 8. In peace, in the middle of distress, right? In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. David, in spite of his troubles, will not stay up all night worrying about the next day. David, in spite of his troubles, will not stew with anger throughout the evening. David, in spite of his troubles, will not have phantom conversations late into the night. Do you, do, do you have phantom conversations? Is this something that you practice? This is something I do. When, when I'm in, in a situation, I lay in bed for hours replaying what I should say and what they'll say and what I should say, and I keep curving the conversation. Well, then I'm going to say this, and they're going to say that, and I'm going to say this. And, and this is how it's going to play out, and you know what it does? Every time, it offers me no peace. It offers me no solutions. It offers me no results. It offers me no rest, and I wake up the next morning, and everything is just as it was, and I feel even worse about it, right? But David won't do this. David will, he says, I will lie down 
and sleep in peace for you alone are Lord. Why? Because God makes him dwell in safety. Only God can cause a fearful heart to be calm. Only God can cause a fearful heart to know genuine peace, a deep contentment even in the fire of adversity. Only God can do that. No, no stewing, no planning and plotting will bring the peace like God will bring. Amid the chaos and the hectic schedules that you lead every day, amid all of the responsibilities and the troubles that you'll face tomorrow, there is nothing that you can do that will bring peace except knowing, knowing that your life is in God's hands. That's what Psalm 4.8 says. Psalm 4.8 is a celebration of the fact that the God of the universe who made all things has your life in His hands. So you can rest in that. You can lie down and sleep in peace. My favorite quote about sleep, I want you to hear this. Sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. It's a good line. Once a day, God sends us uh, to be in bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness, oh, this is good. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think we are in control and that our work is indispensable. The cure, to cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. What a reminder that life doesn't depend upon me. And if I try to go without the sleep, if I try to refuse it, if I try to pretend that I'm God and I am in control, what happens? I crash and I burn, right? God designed me to function in this way to remind me who is God. So in other words, we go to sleep and we rest knowing that I'm not ultimately in control and neither are you. I I go to sleep and I rest being reminded that the living God who all things are held together by the power of his hands, he is in control and that's the key to sleeping at night. Did you know that? It's the key to sleeping at night. It's knowing I can't change this, I can't control this, but God's got me. God's got me. Don't miss this. In... in, uh, In Psalm 3, verse 5, David's in another tight spot. This one is where Absalom, his son, is trying to take over the kingdom. He's trying to overthrow David, his king. He thinks he could be a better king. And so David has taken off. He's left his throne. He's running and hiding. And in this moment in Psalm 3, 5, uh, David says, I lay down and I slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. Right? Same kind of situation. The walls are closing in. His friends are his enemies. His confidants have turned against him. His own son wants to take his throne. His life is in danger. You don't just say, hey, I'm going to take the throne. Step aside. You kill the king so that you become the king. And he says, "Ah, I laid down and I slept well. Had a good night's sleep. And I awoke because the Lord sustains me. But it's not just his sleep has been restored. Now in Psalm 4, you have put gladness in my heart. You've made my heart full. You've brought me joy more than when the grain and the new wine abound. You've brought me gladness more than when I have everything that I want and everything that I need all surrounding me. I am more satisfied in you in a tight spot than I would be at a feast and a party celebrating my goodness, right? God, you've brought gladness into my heart more than when people have grain and new wine in abundance. There is no indication in this text that anything about David's circumstances have changed. It doesn't say, oh, and now everything worked out, and 
You know, he became the captain of the football team and he got straight A's and got a scholarship and got a promotion and met the love of his life. It's, it's like the perfect life didn't lay out suddenly because he turned to God. Nothing in his circumstances has changed as of yet. And yet David has changed dramatically in the middle of his circumstances. There's a, a transformation internally here. This is what David means when he says, in a tight corner, God, you have made room for me. My anxiety has turned into assurance because I've remembered who you are and where I stand with you. You are the holy, righteous God, and I belong to you. You've got me. He found in this that there's more joy. There's more joy than when life is in abundance. He found in this because he didn't, what we tend to do, fight or flight when he felt the pressure come on. Instead, he rejected fight or flight, and that began to dissipate, and now he began to experience delight in God, right? Delight in the Lord. In his book, uh, Jesus Among Other Gods, here's what the author says, faith, biblically defined, faith is confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in his power, so that even when his power does not serve my ends, the things I desire, the outcomes that I want, the circumstances that, that I prefer, even then my confidence in him remains simply because of who he is and that he is for me. It's knowing deep down, Psalm 1611, you will make known to me, God, the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. It's knowing there's more joy to be found simply in knowing Jesus than in all the pleasures promised from the world combined. And when we find that's true, if you come to a moment where you discover that's true, it's not enough to write a song about it or sing a song about it once in a while or to do a Bible study occasionally about it, or to sometimes tweet it. It's something that you must preach to yourself on an ongoing, daily, and moment-by-moment basis, that there's more joy to be found in knowing Christ as Lord than in all other pleasures combined. It's something that we have to model in our lives on a daily basis to fill our prayers, to fill our relationships, to fill our conversations, to fill our work with that belief. And we may at times have to suffer and sacrifice to be convinced of the truth that even when we have not, there is joy, more joy to be found in knowing that God is for us and that there is joy that is, is full. It's not just partial. It's not measured. It's not half-baked. And there are eternal pleasures forever. It's not partial. It's not the kind where it promises a lot but delivers a little or it's good for a little bit and then it wears out quickly. It's not temporary like that. And David, as he preaches this to himself, it's not a message that he, he intends to keep to himself. If you watch, he begins to relentlessly press this out from his inward life into his outward life. Verse 2, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? He wants the people around him to know that their aim is off. He wants them to know that their direction is pointless. It's not leading to life and life abundant. And he doesn't want them to know this so that he can shame them and say, see all the wrong things that you've done. He wants them to know this so that they would come with him into the secret place that he has found with God where there are pleasures eternal, where there is more joy to be found, right, than in all the grain and the new wine abounding. He wants them to see straight so that they would come to the place that he's found with God. And one more thing I want you to see is in verse 4. Verse 4 is powerful. I, I don't know if David is really preaching this to the people around him or if he's preaching it more to himself in this moment. You've, you've heard this verse quoted. It says, tremble and do not sin. Be angry 
and do not sin. In other words, you have anger, but do not let that sin control you. Instead, meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. And this is his counsel, whether it's to his enemies, those who have surrounded him, those who are are putting their thumb on him, or whether it's to himself when he has this tendency within himself to fight or flight. Basically, his counsel is whatever you tend to do whenever you're feeling anxiety beginning to overtake you, stop and do the opposite. Like, it's opposite day, okay? When you feel yourself beginning to lash out, to speak out, to fight back, to make a decision in a, a moment of anger, just stop and do whatever, whatever the opposite of whatever you were about to do. There's a good bet you are going to walk in sin, to stand steady on legs of sin. Instead, tremble. Let the, let the, don't deny the feeling. Feel the feeling, but do not let it control you and overtake you and define who you are and how you will live in this world. Verse 4, tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Verse 5, offer the sacrifices of righteousness unto the Lord and unto those around you and trust, trust in the Lord. When the walls are closing in, David is relentless in saying, God, verse 6, lift the light of your countenance upon us. Remind me of your presence. Remind me you are with me, you are for me, that my life is in your hands. Don't let me fall to the outward pressures to change who I am. Don't let me forget who I am in you and what plan you have for my life. But Lord, let your countenance, let your countenance shine upon us. And so David, when he's in a tight spot, he cries out to God with this audaciously like, like confident prayer, this bold, gutsy, honest prayer. And God hears him. And not just pacify him, God responds to him by bringing him peace and filling his heart with gladness. Church, I want you to remember who you are, okay? Just to realize who you are. You are not the summary of the things that you've done and not done in your days on this earth. Who you are is not defined by your successes and your failures, by the things you've checked off your bucket list. That's not who you are. You're, you're, who you are is not what people have always said about you. Who you are and how you are is not defined by other people's opinions about you. It's not defined by their good behavior or their bad behavior. You are a person, a man or woman, who is made in the image of the holy God himself. And though you were born into a world of sin and you had at the very moment of, of, of cognitive impulse, you began to walk in sin just like me, You've been pursued by God in a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love in Christ. And if you have not come to a moment where you have you've trusted in Christ, where you have rested in Christ, where you have received life in Christ and begun to walk with Him, then make that the priority of your life. A greater priority than any other thing that you might pursue this week to know Him and to trust that God desires a relationship with you through Jesus in which he will bring gladness and joy where he will press back the walls and help you to breathe. And if you are a son or daughter in Christ, I want you to remember that you are a son and daughter of the living God in Christ. I want you to remember that you can have the same confidence, the same boldness, the same peace, and the same gladness as David had in Psalm 4. When in a tight spot, rather than fight or flight, rather than than cave to all of the anxiety, when everything gets all mixed up, you can turn to God with confidence 
and know that He hears, know that He receives, He desires your voice, and He's ready to give you His care and His help. Psalm 4 is meant to be used by you. You know how I know that? In, in the inscription, the very top of it, if you look, it says, David says, to the choir master, right? To be read with stringed instruments here. Sometimes it's a flute, sometimes it's a stringed instrument. This was written for the people of God to use it, that it would lead us forward throughout our lives. Psalm 4 is meant to be used by you. And so maybe eight verses for crying out loud, maybe you need to memorize Psalm 4 that it would be on hand and it would be ready when you begin, the very moment you begin to feel the walls close in, you follow the pattern of David. Maybe you need to type that out or print it out and you need to put it on your bedside table because you find yourself losing sleep every night, consumed with anxiety, consumed with with anger, consumed with, with emotions that are based upon the pressures that you're feeling from life right now. And you need, before you go to bed every night, to pull that out and read Psalm 4, 1 through 8 and go, Lord, same for me. Can I pray for you? Father, this morning, most of all, we come a grateful people. Grateful when we realize just, the, just a fragment of the care that you have for us. That you have made us and formed us for life with you. To receive the overflow of your glory and your goodness. Father, forgive us and help us when we reject that, when we for some reason think there's greater glory to be found on our own. And thank you in your kindness, you lead us back to yourself. Christ, for all you did to give us life, help us to walk in you, Spirit, Holy Spirit. In the minds of of, the hearts of your family, would you today and this week, would you help us in our time of trouble? When the the pressures of life and the trouble, which like hits us every morning, the moment we wake, when it begins to close in on us, help us not to forget who we are and who whose we are. We belong to, to you. And would you, as David has said, would you relieve us in our distress? Would you, when we're in a tight spot, make room for us? And I pray that this church, your church, that we would enjoy the peace and the gladness that David shares in Psalm 4. Not just so that we would have happy lives, but so that we would give you glory. And that so people around us would go, why is that guy always so okay? (laughs) And we could say, oh, it is not I, but it is Christ in me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.